Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we are grateful for your word and grateful for our chance to be in it, submitting ourselves to your Son, your Holy Spirit. We'd ask that you would be blessing us this morning in your Son's name. Amen. Well, as you can tell from the fancy Frankenstein lettering, we are in the book of Jude. That's the whole book of Jude. All 25 verses. And the book of Jude is one, it's one of my favorites, and so I end up talking about it a lot in private conversation, and then I realized I haven't ever, it's been eight years uh, since I preached out of Jude. And uh, some of you who've been here longer than eight years go, what, again, so soon? Um, but I have to preach on something. And it was Jude this morning. Now, it was mostly because I was looking at another passage in John, 1 John, um, things I want to go back to as often as I can, things like confession of sin. And probably sometime in the future, I think, soon, I, 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 I want to cover things of that nature because it's far more important to us that, that whatever your doctrinal viewpoint that you've submitted yourself to the holiness of God in Christ and that's what you are desiring to promote in you. You're trying to bring people away from sin closer to Christ. You're trying to be Christ-like yourself and whatever helpful hints we can get, um, we would appreciate. Now, in the short epistle of Jude, 25 verses, there's some weirdness, okay? And usually we go to Jude to kind of amplify the weirdness. To point out to people the weirdness that they did not run into in their Sunday school book classes, whatever they grew up in. So it's got quotes from pseudepigraphal works, a reference to a story out of a pseudepigraphal work that no longer exists. Uh, what else does it have? Angels sleeping with women. I mean, sleeping with, you know having relations with. It's just, it's got some weirdness in 25 verses. Now Jude himself is probably, as far as everybody kind of acknowledges, this is one of the brothers, the physical brothers of Jesus Christ. Out of, uh, I have the reference here, Mark 6.3 lets you know the names of the brothers of Christ. James being one, the writer of the book of James. And Jude, or Judas, being uh, another, not the Judas who was bad. So he's a brother of Jesus Christ, puts weirdness in his uh, short book, and sometimes that can be set us apart from what he's actually trying to accomplish with us. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, beloved of God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, being very eager to write to you of our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude's reason for writing, he lays it out. It's a theme statement, thesis statement. 
I wanted to write to you something good for your salvation. Something good for the salvation that we share. The common salvation. And consequently, the thing I picked up as a topic was the tension that you will need, the fight you need to be in to protect this common salvation that was delivered once for all to the saints. Now a few things that are evident in that, however you reword it. Common is not a it's not mean common like vulgar. You share something. When you have a lowest common denominator, right? We generally tend to think of, well, they're commoners. They share the most low quality of citizenship in these United States. They're commoners, they're peasants. It's a vulgar thing, it's a common thing. Here it tells you what the common thing is. Our common salvation. We don't, when we stop to make a, a joining of Christianity between us and other people who claim it, it should be a common salvation. I shouldn't be in some sort of ecumenical good favor with somebody who isn't a Christian. Merely because they got baptized or they, they, they belong to a believing church. And that is the point. Now, when we get further than this, this is not just Evan Wilson's uh, radical Anabaptist tendencies. This is the point of the book. To prepare you to contend for that which was once for all delivered. And that what was delivered to you created a common experience we call salvation. So that when you talk to somebody... And you wonder, I don't know what these guys... Mormons are at your door or something like that. How do you get right with God, you would ask them. What is the nature of being right with God? What is the nature of the faith you hold that you call your Christianity? What is it? Describe it to me. That should get you to the bottom of some of the difference, not the commonality. And it also lets you know... This is not a progressive faith, in the sense of not progressive as in liberal, but progressive as in always moving with new innovation. This was once for all delivered. The message of the gospel has been the message of the gospel since the Lord's resurrection and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Since then, that was what was delivered, that was what saved you, that's what we have in common. Things that, things that are later that divide Christians ought to be, uh, well, you can't avoid thinking something differently than someone else. I mean, your mind's your mind, whatever convinced you. Um, but you have to realize I should not be associating that with the common salvation I share with this other person. They might not agree with me about end times, or they might not agree with me about the mechanism of the gospel. But as long as they believe... The once-for-all message declared that led to salvation. Now, we don't want to think that being ecumenical is the highest good. 
Because if I have to make my salvation lower than my salvation, I have to broaden my definition of what it is to pass from death to life so that I can get along with somebody over here that holds a certain notion and it's not saving them from dead works. I have made ecumenicism, the desire to blend with other people who claim to be religious, more important than what is really in common, which is the salvation. You love being with an Anglican or a Lutheran or a, who's saved. You love being with them. You shouldn't feel any obligation to love being with the Lutheran or the Anglican that isn't saved. Because it's a common salvation. Now, here the problem is, because he's, he's saying, be thinking in terms of what you have in common, how it has been thus since the beginning, for, verse, verse 4, that was a convenient, for, verse 4, admission has been secretly gained by some who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly persons who pervert the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Because in this ecumenical moment, unless you have a realistic understanding of what it is to be a Christian, and you are ready to contend for that, you're going to be putting up with bad people who sneak into the church. Now, Paul uses the same phrasing um, in, in Galatians. There are two basic attacks on your faith. Okay? One is to take away the grace of God by legalism. That's what Paul was generally arguing with. People who thought you have a list of rules, a way of performing, rituals, religious deeds, righteous deeds to please God. They were secret brother, people who were secretly coming into the church. He said, we did not give in to them for even a moment. But uh, Jude has got a different problem. There are secret brethren also who come into the church with a message of licentiousness. So for those of you who are not familiar with words like licentiousness, um, having license, living a life as if you had a license to do everything. That's their perversion. That's what Jude's dealing with. That's it's twofold. Now they're in the institution that is called Christianity. You know this is happening all over the country. If you follow any kind of Christian news at all, you're looking at even in evangelical churches, people lowering the bar on morality. They not only create a license, but they start to question, they start to function in an antichrist way. Not like they carve 666 on their forehead or, uh, you know, hold black masses uh, on, a, on a holy day. But they're antichrist in that they do not, was the hymn that we, verse 3, that said, we submit ourselves to everything that Christ said. They do not submit themselves to everything that Christ said. They make a choice. They deny their master and Lord. 
Not just they denied Jesus Christ. They denied their master and Lord. Our only master and Lord. So we, we've got this twofold thing. This is what has to happen. And if you're, if you're some sort of naive Christian who, who doesn't realize that there's going to be, perhaps at a congregation of this size, which is small, there's still going to be some people who feel that tug to the piety of legalism. And then there's some who really like the fact that the pastor smokes cigars and, and slowly but surely because they're not close to Christ and they see the freedom they've been given in, in the Lord, they start to develop a coterie of license. People who get to do whatever they want. Do you know it's legal to smoke weed over in Pullman? Road trip, right? And it wouldn't be illegal anymore. I could go over there, be the smoking weed pastor. There's some other issues at stake, because beer is legal here, and I could go get plowed at John's Alley, but that would be sin. I'm confused. You need to know, you need to not be a naive individual and some big innocent that thinks, of course everybody who gets together in a religious building and talks about religious things is up to good. Some are up to an excessive piety of legalism. Some are up to the, 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 the cut loose new covenant. And to giving antinomians a bad name. And that's the one we're concerned about this morning. They're likely to be more secret, the fact that they are sexually immoral, or they are liars or cheats, or, or um, uh, malicious, or have a problem with drink or weed. He wants you to know something. He said, I desired, when I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, I wanted to write to you about contending for the faith that you have had since the beginning. All right? Because there are people who snuck in, in the first century, to the church that the brother of Jesus went to. Okay? Now you say to yourself, well, yeah, I can see how they could sneak into a church like this. The door's always open. You don't have any statement of faith. They got a sign. They don't have to join. What? And who knows? There could be non-believers here. Now, that um, that goes way back. When you read the New Testament about false teachers, you do realize that these were churches that were founded by an apostle or a brother of Jesus Christ and they're still having this problem. You can't have the perfect Christian church government that would keep this from happening. If you can't have it with apostles standing around, we're not going to figure it out here. You just have to. Where is the, where's the energy got to be expended? It's in you. The energy about keeping the church in a better shape spiritually is because you take on the, the realization that these things happen, that people get dragged off one way or another away from Christ. 
grace is no longer any advantage to them because they go back into legalism, or they insult the grace of God by living a life of licentiousness. He says in verse 5, Now, I desire to remind you, though you were once for all fully informed, that he who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. He says, I want you to know. What's the pattern he's setting up? The pattern he's setting up is in the good situation, a very bad thing happened. So he led the people out of Israel, out of Egypt, and then he destroyed the whole generation of the wilderness because they did not believe. And the angels, verse 6, this is one of the weird things. We're trying not to dwell too much on the weirdness. The angels that did not keep their own position but left their proper dwelling have been kept by him in eternal change in the nether gloom until the judgment of the great day. The angels. You go, hmm, angels. But what's the point he's making? The elect people of God and the highest placed agents of God both had a huge... I mean, when you think about it, if you were thinking about the fall of Satan, whenever that happened, a third of the angels. That's a tidy sum. All of the Israelites over the age of 20 perished in the wilderness. All of them, except for Caleb, Joshua. That was it. So you should be reminded by this. Again, if you have a naive hope that somehow the guys in charge of the church, the deacons, the elders, whatever it is, or the history of your church is going to keep you where you're supposed to be, give up the most elect and highest placed. And what are they doing? What are they doing? He says the angels did this, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise acted immorally and indulged in unnatural lust, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So he's saying the two that you have to think about are the elect people of God and the elect angels of God, both massive falling away because of because of, they were like Sodom. Have you ever thought, I mean, this seems like cold, um, judgmental view of the church, but Jude has this view of the church, says, you need to watch out for this. There, because there are secret people coming in to spread sin, you've got to be ready to contend for our common salvation. And not have an unrealistic view of whether or not this is possible. Now, you might not agree with some of my assessments of the church today or the church in history, but I would recommend sometime that you read some church history. If nothing else, to scare the living bejeebies out of you of what Christians are capable of, what we call Christians. C.S. Lewis expressed at one point, I forget where it was, that he always wanted to write a book that was a confession of all the evil the church had done in history. He didn't get around to it. But I love the, the sympathy he had for that. You know, say, I will, well, somebody needs to say they're sorry. 
But we try to make this hagiography. Ever, ever have that moment yet where somebody you really admired, you found out not so much? It happens a lot in politics or religion. He says, I want to remind you of these stories. Why do you think? He says, and this is what these guys are like. They will be this way because they've decided, the angels decided, not my will, not his will, but mine. And when you make the decision, not his will, but mine, you will become just like Sodom and just like Gomorrah. And it doesn't take long, because believe me, when you give yourself over to your passions, really bad things can happen. Yet, in like manner, he's saying, just like these guys, the guys I'm warning you about, the ones who are secretly snuck into the church, in their dreamings, defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile the glorious ones. And then he refers, there's a kind of a, you, you pick up those three things and, and weigh them in your hands because you're supposed to be the young realist in Pew 5. Just Adrian, he's only the one in Pew 5. <laughs> Whatever Pew number you're in, you're supposed to be the one who's encouraged to contend for the common salvation that is in you, that you don't let this disrupt your life, that you be reminded that the best situation, the most holy-looking movement, the people of Israel were a movement of God that he sent Moses to go get out of Egypt. And they went and distrusted and ignored and rejected authority. They defiled the flesh. Remember that Moses comes down from the mountain with the, with the Ten Commandments? Right, I mean, the irony is, is almost too sweet. Ten Commandments, one in each arm, just like Charlton Heston. And he gets down there, and they're chasing women around the camp. Drinking up a storm, worshiping a false god. You can't leave town for a minute. Defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile the glorious one. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, disputed about the body of Moses... He did not presume to pronounce a reviling judgment upon him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. That's nowhere in the Bible, by the way. That's one of the weirdnesses of Jude. He's referring to the story that comes out of the book, The Assumption of Moses. It does not exist anymore. We have no copy. We have some quotes of it from early Christian writers. It was a pseudepigraphal work connected to the Testament of Moses, um, which we do have, and um, which I have at home, not the original, just a copy. Uh, but in that book, there was this story of Moses' body being argued over between Michael and Satan. Satan claimed him because he was a murderer, and, and, and the angel just says, um, the Lord rebuke you. And he gives it as an illustration. 
But these men revile what they do not understand, and by those things that they know by instinct as irrational animals do, they are destroyed. Now I want to point that verse out as central to the passage. Central, so central it's the memorable verse down in the box at the bottom. It's one of those verses normally I sort of read over, you know. But these men revile what they don't understand. Okay, these guys, the, Michael, Arch, the Archangel Michael, although he's dealing with Satan, Satan is a glorious one, and the Archangel Michael will not revile him. He says, did not presume to pronounce a reviling judgment upon him. He says, but the Lord rebuke you. So you're learning something about, I mean, he's even illustrating it with the worst possible agent, Satan. You would think, my gosh, I grew up singing the song, if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on a tack. <laughs> At Sunday school, Southern Baptist. I realized later, I probably am a little above my pay grade there. If the Archangel Michael could not say, anything reviling about the devil, even though the devil was wrong and the Lord needed to rebuke him, Michael was in no place. And these men act like they know stuff when they don't. They revile what they don't understand. Now, here's why I say that's an important thing. What happens to you when you don't understand? Well, you, in this case directly, you revile what you don't understand. And what you do understand, you only understand instinctually. What do you understand instinctively? Sex, eating, and a good time. Right? You want to have pleasure? If you want to title it under that, I want to have pleasure. As irrational animals do. The things they know how to do, since they don't know what's right, they only know what they have by instinct, and by those things pursued, they are destroyed. So, if we removed all reason from Moscow, Idaho, believing reason, unbelieving reason, standards, ex you know, expectations, and all of a sudden we were just like cattle, with everything else left intact in our urges, bad things would happen. It would be like anarchy. People would grab what they wanted to have. And when you want to have something, and your passions want to have something, that's what steps in when you don't understand. So this is why you as the Christian are supposed to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered. You should understand what that common salvation is. I was describing, uh, discussing the faith with some friends uh, of a different denomination uh, than ours about the nature of, uh, what was Peter Escalante, um, and he and I are in lockstep on a few points, one of them being the slip of the believers into Reformed Catholicism, not Reformed Catholicism, uh, Roman Catholicism, and Eastern Orthodoxy. And we are talking about how it is incumbent upon you as you move around the landscape theologically. You might 
find that you grow out of this whole all souls informal radical Anabaptist goofiness and, and come up with something else as you move on in life. But I want to encourage you to understand what was wrong with this and what's right with where you're going. Okay? You need to be able to understand because if I'm wrong and you're right as you move on with your Christian life and grow in your maturity, it will be evident to you in understanding. You'll be able to point to what is wrong with this. What we believed about salvation, what we believed about passing from death to life, the experience of grace of the Holy Spirit, all those things that we have affirmed and we try to live. If we're wrong, you should be able to understand what's wrong and understand what's right. Because they don't understand, you will be left to just flipping off those in charge. They revile the glorious ones, they reject authority, and they defile the flesh. That's the only thing that can happen to you in a situation that you don't understand. You have to have an inertial force. That or you're just some sort of little habitual, you know, good kid that is too afraid to live outside the authority system you've been handed, so you, you plod through life that way. Well, we're going to subtract them. They're not admirable either. But if you don't understand and you have any urges at all, you will live by your urges. And if you do with the things that you know by instinct, you'll be destroyed. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of Cain and to Balaam's error and perish in Korah's rebellion. Okay? You say, uh, I recognize Cain. He killed Abel. We don't want to do that. No killing of your brother. But what is he really dealing with, with Cain, Balaam, and Korah? Go back and read the passages. See what the conversation is like surrounding it. With, with Cain, God is petitioning Cain. If you do right, will you not be accepted? Sin lies couched at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Accepting God's way and doing it. Because as soon as you don't accept the authority of God, you're left to your own inertial force, which is, I want to kill my brother. And it's not always killing your brother. It's doing what you want. You can't imagine, why am I doing this? Balaam... was a prophet, not a Jewish prophet, but a prophet, a Mesopotamian prophet, who was hired to curse the people of Israel as they came up out of Egypt. And he comes down and he keeps on blessing them. And the king who hired him is just ticked because he says he can only say the things that he was inspired to say. He's a real prophet. But we find out that Balaam, a little later, for the sake of earning his keep, gave very practical advice um, to Balak, the king of Moab, in which they sent a bunch of hot chicks into the camp. And uh, those Moabitish women, fine. 
and a sexually transmitted disease killed 23,000 in a day. Balaam, for the sake of money, earned his keep. Korah, he was an egalitarian. It's when the people of Israel marching around and Korah and his family go, hey, we're just as good as Moses. Who died and made you in charge of all this? So Moses says, okay. Let's go before the Lord. Bring your censors. Find out what happens. Well, the scene develops. The reference you can look up, number 16. And uh, <laughs> the ground opens up in front of Korah's tent. His whole family falls into Hades. And then fire comes out from the Lord and destroys, oh, 150 guys standing there with their censors. Just right out of the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Proved it, said Moses. <laughs> don't be this way. Now this is what happens when you don't understand. You don't understand what God is doing. Because this joint, this is a knee, has got to bend. You have got to know who you bow to. Who's in charge of your life? In Christianity, Jesus Christ is in charge of our life. He is our master and our Lord. You cannot deny him as your master and your Lord. There was an argument 20, 30 years ago, heavy in Christian circles, was whether you had called lordship salvation. Did Jesus Christ have to be Lord of your life to save you? And my answer was, uh, yeah. Because you're denying, you're thinking that grace, we're just believing that Jesus is making forgiveness available without any payout for God. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you should be saved. Romans 10. These people, when they don't understand what the gospel is, they don't understand it has been the gospel since the time of the apostles. That's what was preached. Whatever you pick up as religion, if it was not preached by the apostles, watch your step. Because even then, people with other motivations, wanting their way, wanting their money, wanting it fair. That's what Korah wanted. I want it fair. I just want to be fair. Everybody, everybody gets to be. Why are you keeping, well, what do you could say, women out of the priesthood? Why are you keeping, you know, transgendered out of the guys' bathrooms? Everybody wants to be fair, come on. And it's getting ludicrous at a certain point. There's a difference. If you don't understand, you will be given up to whatever you want. And believe me, whatever you want won't always be normal. You can't count because you're, you know, you maybe slipped a few gears when you were young. And when by the time you really get given over to your passions, you might come up with something that's a little bit put you in prison for a while. Do you think people that molest small children don't realize? They can't help themselves. They've been given over to their passions. Tragic for them that it happened to be that one. 
because it's a tough time in prison for pedophiles. Do you want to be a passionately driven person and destroyed by it, or do you want to be someone who understands the faith we have, and you hold out for that reality? Because these are blemishes on your love feasts. They boldly carouse together, looking after themselves. This is going on in the church in the time of the apostles. Waterless crowds, carried along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the nether gloom of darkness has been reserved forever. Jude's got 25 short verses in the Bible, but boy, that guy can write. Look at that. What are waterless clouds? What does that say to you? You ever been in a drought situation? Cloudy day, gray, dark gray. Or what do they call it? Uh, A dry thunderstorm. Just thunder, lightning, no rain. Ever feel that vacancy? Unfulfilled. Carried along by winds. What's that mean to you? I mean, he's writing this poetry, this description, to evoke something in you. And since the instruction for you this morning is to understand your faith, what is he getting at? Carried along by winds. You ever see something carried by wind? I saw a part of a show yesterday. Um, you know, that um, undercover boss, the guy from Waste Management, was trying to pick up garbage on the side of a hill on a windy day. He ends up getting fired. He said it was his first time he'd ever been fired in his life. And some black guy who, who's just been a real pro at picking up trash fired him. It was good to see. But it was interesting to watch a guy chase paper bags or plastic across a hillside in the wind with a pointy stick. That's what their lives are like. Carried along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn. You know the look. You know something has died, twice dead, uprooted. That's a tree in bad shape. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars. The word there is planares, where you get the word planet. The planets are the wandering stars, because they don't follow the stellatum through space. The the dome of heaven follows itself, except for the wanderers, which are the planets. We get the name wandering from, well, we get the name planet from wanderer. And that's the word used here. They're planets for whom the nether gloom of darkness has been reserved forever. They don't, you don't know why they're going where they're going. It was of these also that Enoch of the seventh generation from Adam prophesied the second point of weirdness here, third point of weirdness. We had angels breeding, we had a quote from the Assumption of Moses. Now we have a quote from another pseudepigraphal work, the first book of Enoch 1.9. Behold, the Lord came with his holy myriads to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness, which they have committed in such an ungodly way. 
and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. A tidy piece of judgment. The lesson, if you, if you draw a lesson out of this, is you say, okay, I have to be prepared that no matter what church I am in, I need to be realistic about the potential decay and calamity of sin possible in my church. I have to be aware. Remember that in the best of circumstances, bad things happen. Remember. Two, realize these people by which bad things are happening are people that don't understand. People who don't understand, and so they're given over to what does motivate them. Now, I also don't want you to think that because I'm suggesting to you that these you know, bizarre encounters that Jude is dealing with, Michael the Archangel and Satan, and then the Book of Enoch quotations, then angels having illicit sexual relations, that we're supposed to turn our attentions away from man and back to the angelic. Because it says they revile the glorious ones, so the path, for, for those who seek to understand, the path to understanding is not to reverse the wrong. Okay? It is not right because it's the reverse of the error. Okay? This is the error the, the legalists make and the licentious make. They think that if the problem is legalism, the answer is license. If the problem is license, the answer is legalism. My kids are getting desires. They are about 14 years old and they've suddenly discovered who girls are. How do I stop them? Well, of course, I make a bunch of rules. That's how I stop them. That's what, that's what rules are for. You see somebody who's this insufferable prig, person of all the rules, hey, what you need is a cigar. You got to get them past that, right? A little licentiousness. The opposite is not true because it's the opposite. I have a quote here on the side from Colossians. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels. Which you could pick up if you saw this condemnation of licentiousness and reviling the glorious ones. You could say, oh, I have a much higher view of the angels now. And obviously, I think the sins of the flesh have got to be stopped in no uncertain terms. So I will abase my, my human urges. That's what the monastics did. Self-abasement. Beat yourself with whips. This last week, some guys in the Philippines were crucifying themselves. Well, actually not themselves. Someone else crucified them. One guy, it was his 14th time. 14th time, nailed, not tied, nailed to a cross. Ah, oh, that's a religion for you. That's Christianity. Oh no, let's look at the common salvation. But it's not opposite. 
They have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting rigor of devotion and self-abasement and severity to the body, but they are of no value in checking the indulgence of the flesh. Consequently, you might want to think that understanding the faith we have in Jesus Christ is a little bit more than you running from one polar extreme to the other. You've got to think about it. You've got to prove your case. You've got to have a passage of scripture that says, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that either. Maybe I shouldn't have a bunch of rules. Maybe I shouldn't have a bunch of sins in my life, my urges. Because God will judge. These, verse 16, are grumblers, malcontents, following their own passions, loudmouth boasters, flattering people to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, with the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. The whole point of this book is, hey, newsflash church, those of you who are really believers, let's be prepared for this. They're here. Oddly enough, they're queer. We don't have to get used to it. They're here. We were told this from the beginning. We know why it happens. Let's understand our faith. Let's share that with the other people that we understand together. The common salvation we have, which is driven to righteousness and not by law and not proving anything by license. It is these who set up divisions, worldly people. Here's a basic thing. Some strange group comes to town and starts being a lot more wild and crazy, and they set up a division. We're, we're the true church over here. You do not have, because they are divisive, does not mean you have to run and lower the standards of getting along between Christians just to keep them from being divisive. You end up divided. But find yourself in the company, not just in church here, but in church with all the churches in town. Find the people with the common salvation that, that shared what you have. You have something. I don't know what that is. I am trusting it is passing from death to life in belief in Jesus Christ. You're going to meet somebody who's a Lutheran. You're going to meet somebody who's a Presbyterian. You're going to meet somebody who's a Southern Baptist who has that common salvation. You're going to meet some who don't. Be in fellowship with those that do and understand that it is that you do. Not because you're a wonderful, you know, smiling 1970 ecumenical priest who can chat with the young, but because you, uh, you know what Christianity is. They set up divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in, on your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Pray, love, hope. Then it says, and convince some who doubt. Save some by snatching them out of the fire. On some have mercy with fear, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. You've got an activity. You've got, you've got personal life, pray, ho love, hope. You've got activity, convince, save, have mercy. 
Now, those, just as something you'd run across at Michael's as something to hang on your wall because it's so screened on an old piece of barn wood, like you probably bought Faith, Hope, Love, or Live, Laugh, Love, or whatever it is they're selling you as meaningful philosophy these days. Don't just take those words. Look back at the passage and say, pray how? Love how? How am I, how am I loving? How do I have hope? What do I have hope in? Build your understanding of the faith. And then, you decide who you're going to convince, who you're going to save, who you're going to have mercy on. And then it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from falling, and to present you without blemish before the presence of his glory with rejoicing, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. That's the best benediction in the Bible. There's a lot of good ones. That's it. Keep you from falling. This is not some exercise where we're going to keep ourselves in our understanding. We're going to build the real, the frozen chosen, the right group of people who know the best and and don't let the, the, the dishonest Christians sneak in. It's our Christ. It's our God. We do not deny our Master and Lord. Because he is the one who's able to keep us from falling. Let's thank him. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. In your son's name. Amen.